If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. I think that it's camps like these that get them socialised in such a way that they can live in towns together. Mm. That was Gareth Williams talking about Viking settlement. She's an infamous celebrity and she's the kind of woman that a lot of the press loves to hate at this time. She's very much parodied and um, pilloried for being Hitler's perfect Nazi woman and so forth. And that was Julie Gottlieb describing the visit to Britain of the Nazi women's leader in 1939. and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions, and you can get them on the iPad, the Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. And we've also recently launched on Kobo, and you can find us under the e-magazine section on kobo.com. Before our first interview, we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Stay tuned to this podcast for details of your 10% discount. Major exhibition on the Vikings opens at the British Museum today, featuring, among a host of other items, the remains of the magnificent 37-metre-long Roskilde VI longship, the largest Viking ship ever discovered. We sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, 
to the British Museum as the finishing touches were being made to the exhibition, where she caught up with its curator, Gareth Williams. We're standing in the yet-to-open um, exhibition, um, right in front of the, the huge 37-metre longship here. Um, the exhibition covers more than just um, ships and the sea, um, but probably a good place for us to start. Can you tell us a little bit about the ship that we're, we're standing in front of now? The ship we're standing in front of now is known as Roskilde 6, mm-hmm. and this was discovered, oddly enough, underneath the Viking Ship Museum in <laughs> Roskilde in Denmark. They built the museum there some years ago to house the five ships excavated from the Roskilde Fjord in mm-hmm. 1962. And in the mid-90s, they decided to build an extension. And in the course of building that, and this was built over the harbour area of medieval Roskilde, they found nine more ships, including this one, right. which I don't think they were really expecting. And this one is, as it w- would happen, the largest Viking ship ever found. Yeah. It's just over 37 metres long, and that means it would have been massive, not just by modern standards in terms of what happens to have been discovered, yeah. but it's at the upper end of what was produced in the Viking Age. So this is not a typical size ship, then? Absolutely not. This is, this is huge. A typical late Viking warship was um, classified in terms of its rowing benches, the number of rowing benches, and typical late ones are around 25 rowing benches. Anything over 30 Mm -hmm. is exceptional, and there's an account in one of the sagas written long after the Viking Age Mm -hmm. and saying still all this time afterwards one particular ship, the Long Serpent, built just before the year 1000, is remembered as the longest ship ever built. That had 34 rowing benches. This one here has 39 or 40. So it's right up at the top end of Viking ship building. We can also see what we've got here is around 25% of the original ship. Mm. It was sunk in the harbour. Only the lower parts of it, which were originally below the bottom of the the harbour level, below uh, the ground, have been preserved. What we can see is that there's quite fine tooling Mm. on some of these, despite the fact that these bits weren't designed to be visible at all. We've got one fragment in a case over there which comes from the upper part of the ship, and that's much, much more decorative. So this is not just very large, it's quite elaborately decorated. It must be a very high status ship. Yeah. So why would why would they have um, decorated a ship that really was a, a tool to get to get somewhere really? Well, ships had a very important role within society. Viking ships allowed the whole of the expansion that gives us the concept of Vikings and the Viking Age, mm. and some of those were purely functional transports. This was also very much a status symbol. Right. Vikings were as keen on demonstrating their status through visual display as most other societies. Um, they're very much a bling culture, which we see uh, with some of the other items in the exhibition, fantastic gold and silver jewellery and highly ornamented weapons and so on. The ultimate status symbol in many ways is a ship bigger and better than everyone else's. Right. What's particularly striking about this one is the date we can tell from dendrochronology roughly where it was built and roughly when and it was built in southern Norway within a few years of 1025 Mm. 
Now, what's interesting about that is in 1028, Norway was conquered by King Knut. Knut already ruled England and Denmark, and by conquering Norway as well, he created effectively the largest North Sea empire that the world had ever seen. Yeah. So spanning both sides of North Sea, controlling also the Viking settlements in Scotland as well. And this ship, from the timing of it, either immediately predates Knut's conquest, so this could be a ship built trying to keep Knut out of Norway. Okay. Alternatively, what better way for Knut to celebrate his conquest of southern Norway and his control of his newly conquered timber resources than to build a bigger and better ship than anyone's ever seen. So this might have been his then? This could, it could easily have been. Um, we know it's a functional ship. We know it, it sailed uh, somewhere to the Baltic because mm -hmm. there's a later repair mm -hmm. from 1039 using timbers from somewhere in the Baltic. Right. Um, there's no direct evidence it ever came to England where Knut spent a lot of his time, but it's, it's perfectly possible. But it, it's up there at that sort of level of royal or similar high-status vessel. I mean, it's incredible how much has actually survived, um, you know, given how long ago it was, it was made. I mean, what would it have, looked, would it have had a, sails, um, masts, that type of thing? It would have a single square sail as the main means of propulsion, but the um, main means of propulsion when the, the wind wasn't convenient would be rowing. Right. And as, as I said, it has 39 or 40 rowing benches, so um, 70 or, 78 or 80 rowers, um, plus spare relief rowers uh, at front and back as well. So probably a crew of 100 men, and that would enable it to move pretty quickly um, even if there was no wind, right. uh, if they had everyone rowing. But yes, it's a relatively shallow vessel for its size. This mm. is typical of Viking ships. That enabled them to sail up rivers. They're not just attacking around the coasts. They're sailing inland. So, for example, we hear of the Vikings sacking Paris uh, and penetrating deep inland in France. In Britain, they get inland as far as Derbyshire. You can't get much further from the no, sea. No, that's true. But their ships were able to go right up the Trent right. up to that point. This particular one, because of its size, probably wouldn't get quite so far upstream as that. But it's typical of Viking ships in that respect that it was very shallow. Similarly, it's that shallow draft that enables them to cross through the river systems of Russia and the Ukraine connecting the Baltic with places like the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in the east. So although you look at a map at first sight, that looks like a completely landlocked route. Mm. There's actually only a very short distance over land between the rivers flowing down into the Baltic and the rivers flowing down in the opposite direction. So the Vikings were able to get pretty much everywhere with warships like this. I mean, they've really, sounds like they honed their shipbuilding skills pretty well. Um, how, how do they compare to other nations at the time? We don't have a lot of surviving ships from other nations no. at the same period. We've got oh, one Anglo-Saxon ship, the Graveney ship of, of the same period, and um, a Frisian ship from uh, Utrecht. They're, they're also built in the clinker tradition, 
the Frisians are also renowned as great seamen and uh, there's an important trading network mm. at the beginning of the Viking Age that the Frisians are already involved in. But we don't have so much surviving evidence. And certainly, although the Frisians were very active around the North Sea, we don't see the expansion beyond it that we do with the Vikings, which points to the Vikings' superior mm. shipbuilding skills. The Anglo-Saxons came over from southern Scandinavia, Netherlands, northern Germany, when they settled in the first place. But it's an earlier phase of ship development. There's a debate, for example, as to whether ships like the famous Sutton Who ship mm. actually had sails or not. Oh, there's, right. there's nothing that clearly points to that in the surviving remains of that ship, but uh, uh, experiments with a half-size replica show that that sails very nicely, so it's not impossible. Right. The next one before that, chronologically, one from Nidam in what was southern Denmark, it's now northern Germany, that was certainly rowing only, and that's from shortly before the first Anglo-Saxon settlement. So we can see a progression amongst the surviving boats and ships that we have, ships developing up to and through the Viking Age. Mm -hmm. This represents the high point of Viking shipbuilding at the end of the Viking Age. And they then shift to other ship types as time progresses. Partly, I think, because there was a desire for larger ships. And as they become larger, this type of construction, which gives wonderful flexibility, becomes then a liability. In a small ship, being flexible is an advantage. Mm, yeah. As it becomes too large, that actually increases the danger that it will flex too much and break apart. Do they sail as, a, as groups, um, or is it you know, one ship by itself? There's references to fleets of ships sailing together mm. and the earliest accounts of Viking raids suggest very small fleets of two, three ships. Mm. Later on we hear about fleets of hundreds of ships, not all obviously as big as this no. one um, and many of those might be smaller supply ships rather than warships but we do hear of these um, fleets sailing. I mean, that must have been terrifying to see, if you know, on the horizon, a, you know, a whole massive fleet of, of Viking ships heading towards land. Um, do we know what, how people saw the Vikings or what they thought of them? Well, I think it would have been absolutely terrifying to see these things, not just on the horizon in the distance sweeping in from the sea, but also sailing up inland rivers. Mm, yeah, if where you, you thought we were safe. Exactly. Yeah. You think today of the image that we have of you know, the narrow boats drifting along canals yeah, and you're yeah. walking along and past the top of the hedge drifts a chimney with someone standing behind steering. Yeah. Imagine a fleet of 100 ships with dragon heads. Gosh. Um, that you'd never seen before. You know, that you'd never seen before. Foreign. Yeah, mm. that, that I think would be absolutely terrifying. We have um, in the exhibition a burial from Weymouth mm -hmm. uh, um, in Dorset which was discovered in 2009 there we have a shipload of what appear to be Vikings uh, there's round about 50 I say round about because the grave was disturbed and the number of heads and the number of bodies don't in any case seem to quite no. add up <laughs> okay. now what we've got there is a group where they're all male we can tell from the carbon dating that it's within 30 years before or after the year 1000, the high point of late mm. Viking raiding. We know from a tooth enamel 
that they come from around the Viking world, around Scandinavia and the, the, the Baltic and into Russia. They seem to have been defeated without clear signs of a fight. There's no obvious battle injuries, but they'd all been beheaded. Right, okay. Now, looking at the skeletons, they, uh, they seem reasonably healthy, reasonably large, but there's a couple who certainly don't fit the idea of the sort of warrior athlete. There's one chap who was clearly suffering quite severely from osteomyelitis, a wasting disease of the bone. Okay. That's not a barrier to rowing, because in this st- uh, style of ship, you've got fixed rowing benches. It's not like modern racing rowing, where you're flexing your mm. knees all the time. It wouldn't be a barrier to rowing. But on the battlefield, he's someone who'd be walking with discomfort and, and probably some limitations on his mobility. His, his legs are really quite badly wasted. There's another one who had broken a, a leg at some point. It had healed, but left him with one thigh bone several inches shorter than the other. Okay. So another person who'd probably been hobbling onto the battlefield rather yeah. than charging on. So not necessarily all super fit, um, but if you weren't strong when you started out rowing a ship mm. like this, or indeed carrying a full set of Viking weapons, you'd build the muscle up. Most of the people in that burial were ranged between their early teens and their late 20s. A few also in their 30s. And then just a handful of you know, really old people like me in their, in their 40s. You've also got um, objects in the exhibition that um, cover Viking settlements. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, um, the assemblage that we're standing in front of now? Yes, this is a group of material from a site in North Yorkshire, which emerged a few years ago through metal detecting. Mm-hmm. But there's also been some archaeological investigation of the site by the York Archaeological Trust. And this is a type of site which until recently was very little known archaeologically. It's a Viking camp dating from the late 9th century. And what's interesting about this is we have a number of references to camps like this in historical sources, but very few of them had previously been investigated. And we're now, as a result of a few having turned up in the last few years, developing a completely different picture of them. What we have here in this little assemblage is we've got a sword hilt mm-hmm. and a whetstone for sharpening weapons, so that fits with the the military character of these Viking camps. Yeah. But we've also got coins, we've got weights, we've got chopped up silver and gold for currency, but we've also got partially melted bits of silver um, as a result of metal working. Mm. So we can see that there's production going on, there's exchange. Also, although we don't have them here, the site has produced uh, spindle whorls for creating thread and loom weights for weaving, so there's evidence of female activity. Okay. But we've got this site, there's another one which is a historically documented site at Mm -hmm. Torxey in Lincolnshire, which has also recently been investigated, and another one that turned up a few years ago at Woodstown in Ireland. And they're all showing this mixture of military activity Mm -hmm. and production and exchange. What's interesting as well is the size of them. These are as large as the largest settlements in Northern Europe at the time. Wow. And it's a period when there are very few towns in the Scandinavian homelands. There's also 
very few in the places that they're raiding. And these date from precisely the point where they're switching from raiding to permanent settlement. Mm -hmm. Once they settle, we get the well-known Viking towns, places like York, with all yeah. the fantastic material that turned up there in the 70s, like Dublin in Ireland, like Lincoln. But at the point where we see those archaeologically, they're already sort of going concerns. Mm. They're, they're well-established. This is, as it were, the missing link between the Viking raiders and the established Viking townspeople. Okay. So there tends to be a discussion of were the Vikings raiders or traders mm. to which the answer is they were both yeah. and some were one, some were the others and some were probably both depending on circumstances but these really represent a transition from the main raiding phase to the settled um, urban life phase and I think that it's camps like these that get them socialised in such a way that they can live in towns together. Mm. They get used to living in large numbers in the same place, having to coexist in a way that they weren't doing in the rural communities of Scandinavia at home. And getting used to interacting with the wider population around. So I think this is a, a key moment in the Viking settlement of the mm. British Isles. It may not be to look at the most exciting group of material in the exhibition. We've certainly got a lot of much prettier stuff <laughs> here. But in terms of helping to reshape our understanding of the Viking Age, I think this is one of the most important yeah. groups in the exhibition. What determined the type of burial that you had? Because there's quite a few... You, you, you kind of get the stones kind of placed in the shape of the ship, don't you? You get the, the burning of the, the boats and things like that. What, how, what, what determined that? There's quite a lot of different burial traditions recorded mm. we hear of straightforward burial and cremation burial and sometimes either of those are with boats and sometimes not a lot may depend on how close are you to the sea um, and of course the biggest determination is what do the people who are burying you decide they want to do rather than what do you yourself decide okay. people don't bury themselves no. and so it might depend on uh, you know, are you buried in an area where you control or uh, or your your family or friends can control the land? Are you buried on campaign, in which case you might have to make do mm. with whatever comes to hand? Are you close to the sea? And one of the issues with the burials where we have outlines of boats made of stones rather than actual mm. boats... Is that because there just isn't a boat to hand? In some cases, it's been suggested, well, maybe they, they can't actually afford the boats. Um, but we have the odd cemetery where both types are found. Right, uh, so, okay. for example, um, in Orkney, um, on the island of Westness, there, there have been uh, both stone-shaped, stone boat-shaped settings and actual boat burials. Mm. Um, and there's what appears to be an enormous stone ship setting as part of a huge royal complex at Yelling in Denmark. And that includes what has been interpreted, although it's not complete, as a stone ship setting much larger than any real Viking ship, almost twice the length, in fact, of the ship really? we have in this oh. exhibition. And that's a very, very high-status uh, site. The beliefs of the Vikings were very, very 
diverse. Mm. They were culturally a mixture of a lot of different peoples. Um, one wouldn't expect them to have all to have identical views on, on what should be done. That was Gareth Williams. Vikings, Life and Legend is on show at the British Museum until the 22nd of June. For more information and to book tickets, visit britishmuseum.org. And you can see a gallery of images from the exhibition on our website, historyextra.com. Gareth has written a feature on the Viking superlative seamanship in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Also in this issue, we offer a different perspective on Henry VIII's six wives. We explore the Second World War home front and follow the tale of the Chinese Long March. You can get hold of our March edition in all good newsagents and in our digital formats. And now we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools. With over 10 years' experience, the 100-strong Dublin, New York, and Oregon-based customer support team is on hand 24-7. Seamless e-commerce solutions mean that your business can be taking money in minutes on a website that is scaled to look beautiful on any computer or handheld device. It starts at only £5 a month, and if you buy it for a year, you'll get a free domain name. So start your free trial today. No credit card required. And as a History Extra podcast listener, you'll receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code HISTORY. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. As you've been hearing, the surviving timbers of a 37 metre long Viking warship will go on display at the British Museum this week. The warship is the longest ever found and has never before been seen in the UK. It forms part of the British Museum's new exhibition, Vikings Life and Legend. Due to open on Thursday the 6th of March, the exhibition will also feature swords, axes, coins, jewellery and religious images. It is the first major Vikings exhibition at the British Museum for more than 30 years. In other news, an interactive map which shows how London's streets have changed over the past century is proving extremely popular online. According to the London Evening Standard, the map, which has been created using 729 Ordnance Survey images drawn up between 1891 and 1895, has been viewed by more than 40,000 people in just a few days. The online tool was launched in November last year, but the maps were only made available in the Google Maps Gallery last week. Users can type in a postcode to zoom in on a particular area and then slide a button to change between the old maps and the current Google Earth satellite images. Schools, churches and even asylums feature on the sketches. Meanwhile, the discovery of a rare 435-year-old Edward VI silver shilling buried in clay on the shores of Vancouver Island has rekindled a theory that the British discovered Canada. 
The coin, discovered in December 2013 by an amateur treasure hunter using a handheld metal detector, could suggest that Elizabethan explorer Sir Francis Drake landed in Canada two centuries before it was officially discovered by the Spanish. It's widely accepted that Spanish sailors were the first Europeans to set foot in British Columbia in 1774, followed by British Royal Navy captain James Cook in 1778. Thanks for that, Emma. And don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. 75 years ago this month, peace in Europe seemed very fragile. The Munich Agreement, brokered in September 1938, was shortly to be rendered worthless when Hitler's forces marched into Prague. War between Britain and Germany was just six months away. So it may seem strange to discover that in March 1939, the leader of the Nazi women's movement, Gertrude Scholz-Klink, paid a visit to London, welcomed by several prominent British women's groups. This unusual episode is chronicled by historians Julie Gottlieb and Matthew Stibbe in an article for the March issue of BBC History magazine. And I caught up with Julie recently to find out more about the visit and its repercussions. First of all, can you just tell us who was Gertrude Scholz-Klink? Well, Gertrude Schultz-Klink was the uh, women's leader in in Nazi Germany. Um, She was uh, appointed to be the head of the National Socialist Womanhood, or the NSF, and the German Women's Enterprise, all um, abbreviated as the DFW. She she took on these posts already in 1934, and she became known from that period on as the Reich Women's Leader, or the Reichsfrauenführerin. In ideological terms, was she a Nazi? Oh, there's no doubt she was a Nazi. She remained a Nazi well after the war, and she died uh, d- died in her bed um, uh, as an old woman as well. Um, she, she wasn't convicted uh, in any court for any uh, war crimes or anything of that nature. And that was partially because most of her work was of uh, uh, in, in terms of social work and not overtly political work. Or at least that's how it was represented and how she'd made her case. Nazi Germany is not known for being one a society with particularly equal gender roles. How important could a woman woman's leader like her be within that kind of society? Yes, that's a very good question indeed. And she was very much uh, exemplative of the Nazi depiction and, and the Nazi construction of womanhood. Uh, she herself was a, a mother of, of five children. You know, she was a middle class housewife ultimately. Um, and she was there to represent wives, sisters, daughters of party officials. She wasn't there at all as, as a beacon of feminism or as a um, as an active political woman. Indeed, she was there to, to represent women's social concerns and to, you know, to, to, to represent their needs within that, that um, very gender hierarchical um, pecking order. And, and what's also interesting is the way that her role was demarcated, because even though she was the uh, Reich's women's leader, uh, she had quite limited powers. Um, she didn't, in, in the end, come to represent women workers uh, who were under the influence of Robert Lai's uh, German labor front. She didn't actually represent female youth uh, who became, went under the, uh, the, the influence of the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler Youth, uh, nor did she eventually represent women rural workers and, and farm workers um, who belonged to another uh, Nazi organization. So even though she was this this quintessential, this iconic uh, Nazi women's leader, the remit of her work was quite confined. When she was in Germany, did she have many dealings with the 
the senior male Nazi leaders? Well, she was kind of, I would say, a token woman in a lot at a lot of meetings and rallies and so forth. I think that was really much more important, her, this kind of tokenism, um, where she was brought um, brought along to show that, you know, women were being represented, but in this very um, essentializing and essentialist way. Now, in 1939, Schultz Klink paid this visit to Britain. How did, how did that come about? Well, it, it, there's two sides to it. My interest uh, is much more from the British side, and my co-writer um, of this piece, um, Matthew Stibbe, uh, is looking at it from the point from the German side. And there's important and, and interesting aspects from both angles. Perhaps it would be uh, helpful to to separate them, look at the British and, and the German angle uh, separately, and then to see um, how they come together. Um, from the British angle, um, it was a reciprocal invitation um, from Prunella uh, Stack, who had recently, at this time, had recently uh, married Douglas Hamil- Lord Douglas Hamilton, um, to come over uh, to Britain to uh, see her own organization. She and her mother had founded the League of Health and Beauty in Britain, which was one of the most uh, popular, if, if not the most most popular women's organization uh, of the period. It wasn't feminist. It was about keeping fit. It was an exercise uh, regime and organization. They, they engaged in mass displays of, of what we would call now aerobic exercise uh, for women. Uh, and, you know, obviously that carried with it a lot of interest in bodies and racial bodies uh, in, in eugenics arguments and so forth. So you can see already there, there's going to be some overlap of their in, in terms of their interests and in terms of the kind of ideas uh, of women that that they would espouse. So, yes, so Prunella Stack is first invited to go over a year earlier uh, to Germany, to Hamburg, uh, to a, a physical fitness exhibit. Um, and there she meets um, Schultz Klink. And the invitation in March is, as I say, is a reciprocation um, to allow Schultz Klink to come over and, and see a number of women's social organizations, uh, social work organizations, and this League of Health and Beauty um, in action. So that's how the visit comes about. So in some ways, it can be portrayed as not overtly political. It's certainly not official. uh, And I think that's important. However, it does have official sanction from the German side. Um, So from the British side, it is not official. In fact, um, it's the League of Health and Beauty who is one of her hosts, as well as the Anglo-German Fellowship, which is itself a controversial organization, uh, which supports Anglo-German friendship, Anglo-German rapprochement, uh, the continuation and the fostering of, of commercial and cultural links between Germany uh, and Britain. And one can imagine uh, how that becomes more and more problematic, certainly um, you know, as the 30s wear on. And here in March 1939, we're already months after Munich, months after Kristallnacht. Um, and it is days before Hitler marches into Prague and, and puts paid to the whole Munich Agreement. So, from the German point of view, as I say, there is an official sanction here, and she is encouraged to go by Hess's office. Um, he's the uh, deputy Führer, um, and he actually he actively pushes her to accept the invitation um, to to London. Um, and of course, this is significant too if we think about Hess's uh, flight to Scotland in 1941, and in in, in an attempt to um, to broker a peace deal uh, at the height of the war. Um, because who does Hess actually go to? or purportedly, or try, who does he go to try to see in 1941? He goes to try to see Lord Douglas Hamilton, who is Pradella Stack's father-in-law. So the people from the British angle who are inviting her over, I mean, what, where are they coming from? Are they doing this 
to try and just improve Anglo-German relations and prevent a war, perhaps? Or is it actually that they have some sympathy for the Nazi ideology? I think probably more the former. We have a number of figures who, who come to meet her and come to the dinner at Claridge's um, who represent all kinds of kind of patriotic women's organizations. They certainly don't represent feminist organizations. But yes, the women who come out uh, to meet her, some of them probably come merely, um, you know, uh, because they're curious to see this. She's a celebrity in her own way. She's kind of a, she's an infamous celebrity. And she's the kind of person that, uh, the kind of woman that a lot of, uh, you know, the press loves to hate at this time. She's very much parodied and um, pilloried for being this kind of perfect, you know, Hitler's perfect Nazi woman and so forth. And, um, you know, she's she's seen as the antithesis of what British womanhood uh, should be or wants to be. Um, but it's nonetheless, her visit is met with some enthusiasm by women in mainly conservative with a with a capital N with a, a small C organizations uh, and a lot of these org- women's organizations uh, which are trying to uh, spearhead national service and national service campaigns as the war becomes imminent and probably unavoidable. So, I mean, at this point, were, were Nazis not really yet beyond the pale in Britain? I mean, some quite respectable organizations sent people to meet her. I know. And I, I think that's that to me is what is so striking about this this episode. Uh, two things are striking. One, that it happened. And two, that historians have barely ever paid any attention to it. It's nowhere represented um, in a, and, and certainly not in a serious way in any discussion of appeasement and, and the breakdown of the politics of appeasement or so forth. I mean, it's 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 not even a footnote uh, in, in kind of the more mainstream studies. But I don't think it, it su- suggests that there's pro-Nazi feeling. I think that would be taking it uh, in the wrong direction, misreading the implications. I think there's just such a deep feeling amongst women, especially, um, although not only and exclusively amongst women, that all should be done, all efforts should be made to avert uh, another war, another world war. So this is seen as an opportunity by these women in national service organizations to, you know, foster and to become part of international relations, to try to heal wounds and and to do their very best from their official and semi-official positions to create these friendship networks. And of course, this is piggybacks on so much women's transnational and international organization from the First World War and into the 20s and then, you know, into the 1930s, of course, too. So when Gertrude Schultz-Klink was in Britain, what was her itinerary? What kind of things was she doing? Well, I mean, it's interesting to look at two things. One, what she actually did and what she was meant to do. Um, to start with what she actually did, she went to a number of, you know, kind of women's social work uh, organizations, uh, a, a training school for women. Uh, she went to um, some classes of the League of Women's, the, the Women's League of Health and Beauty. Um, she went to this uh, probably quite grand dinner at, at Claridge's, uh, which was hosted by the Anglo-German Fellowship, uh, where she was met by a lot of women in official positions, including uh, the, the opener uh, was uh, an MP called uh, Florence Horsbrough, uh, who was a, a Scottish conservative MP, very much a Chamberlainite. 
And, you know, but her visit was still in some ways, it lacked a certain formality. And that, it's, as I say, it is interesting what she was meant to do because Matthew, uh, my co-author, has discovered that the original itinerary suggested that she would be visiting a, an unnamed Oxford Women's College and the House of Commons. Uh, but those latter two visits don't ever seem to have uh, taken place. And um, I can't tell you exactly, I can't be entirely sure why that is the case. I can speculate, but... Uh, Certainly, they didn't take place, and her um, visits were much more, um, as I say, unofficial, more casual, and not as politically overt as they would have been if she had gone to an Oxford college, or more importantly, to the House of Commons. What kind of opposition was there to her visit to Britain? Were there a lot of people who weren't happy that Britain had, had taken in someone who was representing a potential enemy? Yes, there were. And I mean, and, and her you know, her reputation in Britain precedes this. Um, she was she was already quite well known. Um, she, you know, her name was was well known in, in feminist anti-fascist circles because she was this, you know, this iconic figure. She was the figurehead of, of Nazi womanhood. That was a an obvious person to get to know and to, um, to refer to uh, when feminist anti-fascists were considering, you know, making their cases. I have evidence, uh, certainly, that there was at least one a demonstration in London streets you know that that greeted her her visit, uh, including you know with posters saying you know get Schultz Plink out of Britain and and so forth. Um, and uh, there was also a, a, quite a bit of debate in the press. And one of the most outspoken uh, critics uh, of her visit and and someone who made it very clear that she wouldn't come to see her was Nancy Astor. Of course, Nancy Astor uh, was the first woman to take her seat of the in the House of Commons, but she was also a conservative. And probably most importantly for our story and what makes her reception of Schultz Klink particularly kind of interesting is if she had been identified as the, the leading figure of the Cliveden set uh, in 1937. Uh, and she was still being tarred with the Cliveden set brush by this time and, and you know, well into 1939 and really until the, the war itself broke out. The Cliveden set, of course, had been this cabal of MPs, the prime minister, um, you know, the, the, the conservative press who were seen to be pro-Nazi and were seen to be working behind the scenes to, you know, to, to foster the, the whole appeasement policy. But Nancy Astor is also a feminist, and it's on the basis of her feminism that she objects to, to Schultz-Klink's presence and to everything Schultz-Klink represents. And she makes it very clear that she is not going to meet her on this visit. She actually says so quite blatantly, and in the press, she dissociates herself absolutely from Schultz-Klink, from the visit, and from everything it represents. And so taken as a whole, what kind of impact did this visit have on Anglo-German relations? Well, if we were to take that question from the point of view of the historiography of what historians have written about appeasement, I think we would have to say none. However, I think that is to give kind of the, the male-centric view of appeasement, uh, uh, you know, to let it win uh, out. And I think that's wrong. I think its significance is is manifold. I think it shows the way in which uh, women could be involved and engaged in international relations and foreign policy at an, another level, but at a very important level nonetheless. It shows the way that women try to reach out to each other despite ideological differences and um, ethnic differences, and that's to kind of put a more positive spin on it. However, uh, I don't want to, 
you know, end with a positive spin because ultimately this was a, an incredibly jarring uh, visit. Um, it was offensive to people on many, many levels. Um, and it was covered quite generously in the press, which again, uh, isn't well represented in, in the history that's written about appeasement. Uh, the press really marveled in, in this episode. And, you know, it was re- she was greeted when she arrived at the, uh, at, at the airport. She was greeted by more or less a paparazzi who was, you know, angling for a scoop, really excited about the potential and they, you know, this was a story. She was, again, like this kind of celebrity figure. Um, so it tells us, again, there's another level uh, where women really, you know, were, were much more involved and um, influential in, in kind of fostering international relations and also in kind of fostering ideas of womanhood in, in the two cases. One other aspect about her trip that that was quite interesting, I believe, is that some people thought it had to do with establishing a fifth column in Britain. Is is that true? That was indeed um, what some people thought uh, she was there to do in in March 1939, was to check up on uh, the rudiments of aspiring that had already been put in place by Annalise Ribbentrop when she had been the wife of the German ambassador um, in London uh, just, just year before. So the charge was, and this was something that Richard Baxter argued in his 1941 book, uh, Guilty Women, he said that that's exactly why she was there. Um, she was there actually to check up on how that spiring was going um, in preparation for, uh, you know, to be the basis for a fifth column if and when war was declared. So the idea was that she was checking up on uh, German women who had been placed in uh, the homes of uh, middle class and a- elite figures. As, as servants, as housemaids, uh, and from that point uh, were able to spy on the British establishment. Now, I don't think there's any evidence of this, actually. Um, and the fifth column, as it eventually was, was constituted, was much less of a, of a force than any of the Cassandras assumed it would be. How does this visit inform a debate that we you actually touched on in a previous article for us about whether women tended to be more pro-appeasement than their male counterparts? I think there are many individual cases where that is so, uh, where women are more inclined to to take the appeasement line uh, on the basis of their of their sex, um, that as mothers, um, as nurturers, as givers of life, they will do all in their power and support uh, the peacemakers as best they can. Therefore, um, the representation in the press, uh, in in the way that they're voting in by-elections, especially around Munich and so forth, suggests that women are overwhelmingly in support of Chamberlain and the appeasement policy on that basis because they are uh, the life givers, the nurturers, uh, and they are therefore the world's natural pacifists. This visit, I think, is again another illustration of that in different ways. And, you know, what's really interesting is when we talk about, you know, the reception of of Chamberlain's uh, Chamberlain's efforts at Munich uh, and the, the, the way that, you know, the Munich Agreement was seen to be this momentous achievement, it is seen to be a momentous achievement from the point of view of mothers, not only mothers in Britain who are uh, also grateful that that war has been averted and, you know, most likely or, or, you know, with God's help as they would see it, because much of it is expressed in quite religious terms, uh, their husbands and sons have been spared another war. Um, But it's also seen by mothers everywhere as, you know, the Chamberlain is kind of 
you know, every mother's darling in September and October 1938. And he hears a lot about German mothers and their gratitude for the Munich Agreement and for his efforts as a man of peace. So I think it, it's a reinforcement of that, definitely, uh, the schultz Clink episode. It, it, it must have a lot to do with, it must be connected, mustn't it, to this idea that women are going to be much more predisposed to this kind of diplomacy, to this type of conciliatory politics, that they can transcend the antagonisms, the bellicosity, and the the hot-headedness of male politicians and the Hitlers and the and, and the Mussolinis of this world. Coming back to Schultz Klink herself briefly, what happened to her after she returned to Germany? And um, I presume contact with her British counterparts ended then. I think so. I don't think I have much more evidence about what happens in terms of her Anglo-German connections after that. Um, she does take another trip, uh, another foreign visit to Italy soon afterwards. Um, or actually, it's 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 just before, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, so she is being dispatched on other foreign trips as a representative, as a, you know, official and a government representative. Uh, but yes, I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be any particular contact, um, certainly with the Prunella Stacks of, uh, and the other women that she uh, contacts on this visit. Don't forget, it's also already her second visit to Britain. She came first for a social work, women's social work conference in 1936. And that doesn't seem to have, you know, led to many very concrete uh, connections either. So yes, when she goes back, I think that Anglo-German link, you know, becomes much more tenuous again. Did she play any kind of major role in the Second World War? She remains in post uh, for much of the war. And, you know, she's rediscovered after the war, particularly in uh, an excellent book uh, by Claudia Kunz called Mothers of the Fatherland, um, uh, published in the 1980s, uh, which is the first major study of, of women in Nazi Germany. Kunz uh, was able to still to, to interview uh, Schultz Klink. So um, there's quite a lot of insight in that book about her attitudes and about, as, as, as I say, the way she never recanted. Uh, she never thought that anything that she had done before or during the war was wrong. And she actually still considered herself, you know, she was proud of herself for having served her country and served the Nazi uh, regime. That was Julie Gottlieb. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read her article in the March edition of BBC History magazine. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll try to read out some of your messages in the future episodes. And you can keep in touch with us on social media, follow us on Twitter at History Extra, or like us, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history news, image galleries, quizzes, features, and more. Next week, we'll be exploring an unusual Second World War shelter with Juliet Gardner, Plus, Daniel Hanan will be discussing the history of freedom. Please do listen in for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.